I will never write a single line which I have not first felt in my own heart. Did you ever? Truer words were never spoken. All right. Language and writing were made available. The writing, Miss Dow, this is good stuff. This is John Helps You Write Better, and I'm John, so I guess we're going to go write better. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. Just like we talked about yesterday for romance, today I want to take a look at a different genre. Today I want to take a look at mysteries. Now, I've covered mysteries over on the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash John Adamus. If you have no idea what the hell I'm looking for, just go look for the big graphic that says mystery or mysteries on it. I've covered a couple different parts at a couple different times. But today I want to talk a little bit under the hood. I want to kind of get into some of the more detailed parts of mystery because I've had some conversations with mystery writers and it's okay. They're doing mystery okay, but we could all be doing mystery better. And that doesn't mean we need to have more complex plots. It doesn't mean we need to have a greater body count or a bigger, crazier crime. It means we need to understand a few things better in order to develop whatever our mystery is, whether it's who killed the person or who stole the object or who did this and what happened. Whatever it is, there are some fundamental things we need to talk about when it comes to shaping and building mysteries. So consider this, like yesterday's podcast, consider this a supplemental to our building mystery recording. Let's call this the more technical side of building a mystery. We're going to cover a couple things like what a circular scene is and what overdone dialogue is and what spontaneous conflict is. But we'll also cover a few things like how to figure out your clue economy and how to generate stakes and how to distinguish between a cozy and a straightforward non-cozy mystery. This is going to apply not only to murder mysteries, but really any, any story where there's a question or challenge put forth and an unknown quantity being resolved, whether that's who did this or who did that or who stole X. As long as there's a who or a how or a what in the unknown, you can apply this stuff. But in order to do this, I think we need a straightforward example to tie everything together, all of our stuff just to pull through so we're not hopscotching from like in this one episode of Murder, She Wrote and in this one story. I want to tie it all together into one case into one example so that we can refer back constantly without me losing my place if I start and stop this recording a couple times. So let's come up with a really straightforward mystery example. We're going to use a murder mystery because it's probably the easiest to fashion and the st most straightforward and linear in order to resolve. You and I walk into a room and there's a body on the floor. They're dead. So you, me, dead body. That's what we need to do. Now, before we lose time and place and race around trying to describe the room or describe the gore from the dead body or set up the weather or do any of that stuff, because while that stuff's important and we will get to it, we need to set some really basic ground rules for a mystery because no matter where this goes and no matter how we take it, we need some boundaries. We need to know what is and isn't going to come up in this story. So... First thing we're going to do is figure out who our investigator is. 
Now, for the sake of this example, because you and I are walking through it, you and I are the investigator. We are co-investigating. That's mostly a function of me needing to be able to talk about what we are going to do. But by and large, if there was a detective character, they'd be in the place of you and I in this. We need to establish who the investigator is. And I'm not saying we need to spend time and space on the page talking about who the investigator is before we get to the murder, though that is a very common practice. We need to establish who the investigator is because mystery is driven by relationship and mystery is driven by conflict. And when we move or adjust either of those two things in relation to each other or independent from one another, we run the risk of losing focus. Things get blurry. Things get messy. Because what happens is when we start bogging us down in the world of the investigator outside of the investigation and we start bringing in other B-plots and we start bringing in other people and we, oh, by the way, we're leaving the door open for a spinoff with this other character or we're just filling time and space with talking or friendship or banter or snark or who the no fuck what we lose sight of why we're talking about the investigator in the first place. So we define our investigator generally in one of two ways. One, we define them by their pursuit of conflict. Or two, we define them by their general ability. Pursuit of conflict is how the character is, who they are as a person, whether they are tenacious, whether they are apathetic, whether they are tough, whether they're two-fisted, whether they're kind. It's describing and developing their moral compass, their philosophical code, their personality, their nature outside of the specific case. And it's usually done because we want to say because of who they are, not necessarily what they are. We don't want to just make them law enforcement or something. Because of who they are as a person, they have a certain approach to the case and it is whatever the story is. This is how they operate. It is generally considered to be independent from how anybody else would do it because we want to focus on the protagonist, whether we are looking at Jessica Fletcher just being a little old lady or Miss Marple being a little old lady and solving a crime or whether we're looking at Columbo or whether we're looking at Sam Spade or Harry Dresden or any number of detectives, Lou Archer, whatever. They have a way of doing things that is outside the norm, I'm making air quotes, we want to follow that character more than we want to follow the norm. If we do want to follow the norm, then we're writing a procedural. Then I'm going to refer you to the works of Ed McBain and his Precinct series, because a procedural, much like we would see a procedural on television, is all about the how the thing is sorted out, how the crime is handled, more so than the specifics of who's doing the handling outside of the idea of like, this is one guy, they do fingerprints, this is another guy, they do photos, etc., etc. But we want to define the character by their pursuit, by who they are and what's going on. It's a lot easier to make the character human, to make the character relatable that way. When we don't do it that way, we generally define our detective like Sherlock Holmes or Batman based on their ability. They're really smart. They're super smart, or we define it like in psych, they're hyper-observant, masquerading as a psychic. Any time we want to frame around how they do what they do and less about who they are, we are aiming for their ability. Now, if we are framing their personality as the driving engine for their mystery solving, 
it gives us more opportunity and more depth for the character. We can talk about more stuff. Not necessarily that they have a daughter or that they have a troubled backstory. Those are two common ways of doing things. We give them a younger family member over whom they are protective, or we give them a reason to struggle outside of the conflict of the case. Not only is solving the murder hard, but they're, you know, 10 days sober or something. This conflict helps secure us a sense of momentum for the story when we need to put the main plot on pause and we need something to talk about. It's not bad or wrong. And the harder and deeper we go with just how heavy their personality is or how heavy their outside the case problems are, you stray away from cozy as you go. If you make their problems very low stakes or very simplistic or underdeveloped or just tame, then you're probably skewing towards cozy. Now, there's nothing wrong with cozy. I will complain about cozy 10 ways from Sunday any number of times, but there is fundamentally nothing wrong with it. It's just that it doesn't try very hard. It's complicated to write. It's difficult to write in the sense that it's a mystery and all mysteries carry an inherent level of complication. But when it comes to detectives bound by personal development and pursuit of conflict, cozies are pretty shallow waters. And I think everybody could do better. I understand that they are disposable reads. They're quick and easy reads. They're a quick little moneymaker for writers, but they're not really pushing a lot of skill unless your writer is fundamentally incurious or lazy or just not really trying very hard, frankly. But that's a cozy. That's a different thing for a different day for sure. When we look at a character framed by skill, however, we start making more polarizing decisions. Like Batman is sometimes seen as the vigilante in direct opposition with law enforcement. Or Sherlock Holmes is hated by some police officers because they make them look stupid. Frankly, this has two major problems. One, it really makes the character feel very flat, that the character really only exists to be the vessel for the deduction, the vessel for the accomplishment of the plot. And as a person, they're sort of secondary featured. They're just kind of like, oh, by the way, they also like blueberry yogurt. And oh, by the way, they don't wear any green. Those levels of details become some of the only things we know about them until we get to a point where we have to give them a backstory or go out of our way to try and keep straight a number of things, and it can lead to boring character development. The other problem in making them polarizing, the other problem in making them all about their ability, is that we don't give ourselves a real chance to step away from the plot. We're always talking plot. It's always plot. It's always, well, I'm good at solving the crime, so I'm going to work on solving the crime. And there's no real room for a B-plot. That's not necessarily bad. It, you don't always need a B-plot, but a B-plot's going to save you more often than not and give you a chance to let the story breathe. One of the primary problems in, in shaping a mystery is that everybody goes like way into the mystery and stays there, staying underwater far too long, not really developing any kind of relief, not really developing any tension structure, just kind of like all mystery all the time, 24-7 until the book's done, which is fine. Like, it's okay to do that. It's not the end of the world, but if we're trying to create a sense of depth, if we're trying to give the story some third dimensionality, if we're just trying to show off how well we can write, we should consider the value in doing more than just covering one plot. We've defined our investigator as the joint force of you and I, and it's probably easiest to develop us as people. So we're going to talk about our pursuit of conflict. 
And we're just going to describe ourselves in example terms as good people who can solve crimes. We want to always do the right thing like Spike Lee taught us. So we, we solve crimes. This is what we do, period. The next thing we want to do is start to think about, now again, we're not putting this straight on the page, but we want to start to think about that dead body because mystery is driven by relationship. And two problems you're going to run into the minute you start developing the first relationship. And the first relationship is always going to be the corpse or the theft or the X, the missing object. It's the problem of the story. That's always going to be part of the first relationship. The first, And then the detective is the other half. It's the crime to the crime solver is the primary relationship in the story, in the mystery. It doesn't matter if this dead body is our former employer. It doesn't matter if it's our cousin. It doesn't matter if it's our neighbor. It doesn't matter if it's the guy we overheard get into an argument at a cocktail party. Those are all nice details. It doesn't matter if it's the diamond thief from, you know, Oman or whatever. It's fine, whatever it is. But our primary relationship is the relationship between the crime solver and the crime. Or in this case, us and that dead body. That doesn't mean we have to, like, tie a direct line. Oh, that's my brother. Oh, that's, you know, your former boss. Doesn't need to be a direct line. It's okay if it's an unknown. It's the relationship doesn't mean a familial connection or a social connection. It means what this challenge represents for our detective. We've got a crime to solve. Okay, we're going to solve it. How much we invest, how difficult it is, speaks more not to how we understand our dead guy, but how we understand the nature of what it is we do. Every relationship beyond the crime to crime solver relationship can be arguably secondary. We don't need to spend as much time and space on it because either it's a B plot and it's going to get less space or it is in support of the main relationship, the main plot. So it's not going to need more space than that. This is a really critical distinction that a lot of mystery writers don't develop because they just see, again, like we talked about, it's just all in 24-7, underwater, pressure, 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 push, 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 only this plot, no break, no surcease, no slowing down, just go, 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 go. We want to develop this relationship, but we don't want to do it to death. So in order to develop this relationship, we need to do what procedural television doesn't do, because prose mystery and procedural television are not the same animal. And you don't want to clone procedural television in prose and call it a day because that's not how this works. Procedural television is going to put an emphasis on some pretty staple stuff. Um, means, motive, opportunity, that kind of thing. And those are fine elements, but they are secondary elements in prose. They're primary elements in procedural television because they can be represented visually. And television is first and foremost a visual medium. But for us, for prose, we need to develop a different kind of mystery construction as follows. And we're going to generally build according to what, why, and who in that order. Here's why. The what is the, not so much the cause of death, though that is part of it. It's the what happened. It's not necessarily the specifics of, oh, someone took the big, heavy award from the award ceremony and, and club the guy. Somebody took a sharp knife and staked the guy. That's part of it, 
But the what is is greater than that. It's this person was killed. This person was killed here. This person was killed this way. This person was killed with this thing. There's there's a lot of the what. And the what really is adding depth to the action that happened. They stole the fabulous baseball diamond. They They took the painting straight out of the museum and no one noticed. And all the connective ancillary bits, they had to foil the alarm system. They had to spoof the cameras. Someone had to get in here and not leave any footprints. Whatever it is, all that stuff falls under this this what. Think about your crime as a what surrounded by all these little like extensions, all these little things that reach out into the world. Because all those things that reach out are your clues. It's the lack of fingerprints. It's the smudge of on the it's the smudges on the window screen. It's the rusty pair of pliers found in the garage. It's the it's the boot prints. It's the glove and the calling card from the thief. It's the, you know, the one single blurry photo from the surveillance camera. All that stuff, all those physical, tangible objects that we can use to create a clue economy to build our story and move it forward fall under our what umbrella. From there, and you can have as many of these as you want. However, too many, and we slow our story down, too few, and it seems like our logic doesn't make sense, there is always going to be a sweet spot. And you're going to figure that out through drafting, as opposed to trying to find an old-fashioned formula from a century ago and trying to make it work today. Up next is a trickier part of mystery development, the why. Why was this person killed? Why was this person killed this way? Why was the crime done this way? Why was the crime done now? We are going to use this to shape in part motive, but also context. Because if the plan was to just kill this guy, why, why, why not just, you know, cut his brakes and have the guy drive off the cliff? Why kill him in the bedroom? Why not kill him in the office? Why, why do it in the conservatory, Professor Plum? Why... Why this person? Why not kill the other scientist who also knew the dangerous secret? Why steal these paintings? All the things in the story that you could pose as a selective question, a why. Why take this, not that? Anytime you can set up a binary like that, anytime you can set up some kind of exclusionary rule that specifies a specific thing, which is, can, be framed, which can be framed as a why, all that stuff matters. Why this person? Why this crime? Why now? Why here? What this is going to do is add more space and opportunity to your story. It's going to give you more utility because you can use those things and those setups as part of the clue framework. Why kill them here? Well, they were coming in here to write a note apologizing for their behavior. Why kill them this way? Because it was a crime of passion. Why steal this painting and not that painting? Because this painting was a painting that... Uh, immortalizes uh, a famous beach scene that the, the thief grew up at. Those whys are in part clues, but also something to add context and rich, richness to your story. You don't just want whys like, well, because it's the, it's the fabulous baseball diamond and it's, it's the only, you know, it's the only stupid fucking gem they got. We don't want simple whys, but we also don't want hyper-complex whys. Well, you see, the killer is, you know, really suffering from this kind of mental health crisis that I have looked up in the DSM and I'm using this particular reference and I've got a footnote in my page and I'm going to explain it to you and then there's this diagnostic code and you have to understand that I, the writer, am so much smarter than you because I have done capital R research. Please pat me on the head 
tell me I'm a very, very good person and let's go on with our fucking day. We don't want to do any of that. We don't need to do any of that. No one gives a shit about that. No one, it doesn't matter. Research is nice and fine and good, but we don't need to substantiate it. We're not going to get a grade. No one's going to fucking care once they close the book. Let's, let's retire this concept of perfection when it comes to developing the whys in order to appear clever, because we're, we're not Stephen Moffat. We are not huffing the smell of our own flatulence. We are not trying to show off how smart we are because we didn't get enough hugs as kids. We use all our whys to whatever degree, whether they are significant or insignificant. We use them to strengthen our primary relationship between investigator and crime. We're going to do that by using those whys to help create a set of boundaries, limitations. And from those limitations, we can create tension. We can create opportunity. We give ourselves more of a chance to do things and move the story forward. Why was the victim killed in this room and not that room over there? Why was, you know, um, why was this clue left for me, the detective, you know, who's had a long series of relationships with uh, these characters over here or whatever? What we're looking to do as much as possible is create limitation through exposure. We are exposing certain clues. We are bringing certain things up and that narrows down what it could and couldn't be. It's a murder with a knife. So we know it's not a car crash. We know it's not arson. We know that it's this person dead and not any of those 10 other people. We know it's somebody who came from the party because they're wearing a tuxedo. When we figure things out, when we expose ideas, we, we create some kind of exclusionary rule. We know it's this, not that. And however big our piles of that are and however small our piles of this are, if that makes sense, because it's just this one victim against all those things, we can use it to create more drive to go forward to solve the who, which is our third constructive element when it comes to building our mystery. The who is, who did it? Why am I solving this last? Too many writers want to do the who first and then figure out the why and then come up with a very clever and elaborate what and then call it a day. It's backwards. It's functional. Like it'll get it done. It'll do that. But if we approach it in a different set of steps, if we approach it in a different set of steps, we give ourselves a chance to expand on each one of those steps proportionally and accordingly give us more stuff to accomplish and do. It makes the story bigger. It gives us more utility. We can tell a better mystery that way. The who, the specific perpetrator of the crime, should be one of the last details you give because there's a chance they won't get caught. Maybe, maybe this is a story where the thief slips away in the night and then we leave the door open for a sequel. Maybe this is a case where the killer, you know, in a final act of desperation, you know, escape, eludes capture only to, you know, fall off the cliff or their plane crashes once they escape. And we don't really get that satisfying resolution of law enforcement or detainment or something like that. We at least get a confessionary beat, uh, a revelation beat where they say like, yeah, I did it and here's fucking why. But by and large, the who is always last because when we're sorting out what the mystery is and why it was done, the who becomes somewhat insignificant. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, the world famous jewel thief who posed as a janitor. It doesn't matter if it's the, you know, the secretary who was tired of being sexually harassed. It doesn't matter if it was any of those people or just some random psychopath that you're writing. The why 
is more important. The what is more important. And again, we're considering each of these big elements as sort of radiating a thousand little spokes that could be clues. And hopefully, the deeper we get into construction, you've connected your what and your why and your who through some of these same spokes. We're not, you know, dangling a million thousand threads for our reader to sort of suss out, well, there's also the shoe prints and what about the fingerprints and oh, the hat, then the hair samples, then there was the comments made by 11 different people, then there's the wine glass, then there's the jewelry. The more things you throw in there in an effort to obfuscate the more necessary clues, the harder it's going to be for the reader. Now, here's where we make another fork in the road when it comes to cozies. Cozies aren't built to be hard for the reader. And the problem is cozies take a lot of mysteries and put them on like less than easy or lower than easy difficulty setting. And it's not because they want the reader to be satisfied. It's because they're intellectually incurious and lazily written. You could try harder, some of you cozy writers out there. I hate to call you out, but you could try harder. You want to be clever, but you want to be clever on very simple terms. And if you're wanting that, you don't really need to be clever. And if you were really trying to write a complex mystery, just write a fucking whole ass mystery. You can raise the stakes. You can develop these things. The who doesn't raise the stakes. It's the why and the what that develop stakes. By the time we're down to sorting out the who, we should have a rough idea of what's happening and why it happened. It's somebody who, you know, cheated on the, the or it's with the why and the who. If one of the possible paramours of the victim was the killer and we line up five different possible paramours, we get a real chance here to establish that the stakes are always the same. It's just a matter of, you know, when this person or that person or this third person did it, it's always the same level of stakes. It's just that somebody did it and we're just trying to figure out whether it was, you know, this one, that one, or the other. What we're doing here is raising the stakes up to a point. Now, generally, when we raise the stakes up to a point, we raise the stakes through the what's, the clues you find in the course of mystery, the why's, the reason why the crime had to happen, up to the point of climax, up to the point of inevitable conclusion where either pre or post confession, we have to square off with the perpetrator and the doer of the crime because that doer of the crime and resolving the crime is part of what's going to close up the loop in our primary relationship. I'm a detective. I'm solving a crime. Sorry, there's two of us in this example. We're the detective. We're solving the crime. In order for us to solve the crime, we have to do something with the perpetrator of the crime, whether that is a daring fist fight uh, on the rooftop in the rain, whether that is a moment where we walk into a room and the real killer has pulled a gun on us because they can't get caught, whether we have lured them to a, to a dark room so that they can be arrested or detained by law enforcement or whatever. The stakes raise up to a specific point. And we need to be careful with our stakes. If we raise them too high, we make the crime seem like a much bigger deal than it is. Now, a, a dead dude on the floor is a pretty big deal, but it's not like, oh my God, the world has come to a screeching halt. Unless you're writing a cozy. Unless you're writing something with very low boundaries, where an episode of television, for instance, can get away with that because there's nothing else. There's no B-plot. There's no greater world. It's just, we are here in this episode to do this crime. And once that is done, we're done. But if we're trying to set up a world, if we're trying to create a context, if we're trying to open the door for a series, it's just one crime among many. It's just one victim among how many others. It's just one part of the city we're seeing. We can go out the door and find other parts. 
Let's talk about a few problems that crop up in the course of crafting our story now that we have our what and our why and our who. Three things I want to bring up. First, I want to bring up what's called a circular scene. A circular scene is the idea that the scene, whatever it is, doesn't take us anywhere. It just eventually brings us back to where we were. A circular scene in a very simple case is that meme of uh, Grandpa Simpson, you know, coming in the door, hanging up his hat, walking a little circle, picking up his hat and going back out the door. We don't really gain anything. And if we were to cut it off, we wouldn't lose anything. A circular scene in a mystery is a case where um, the investigator runs into a room, sees a clue, walks out of the room, and then goes, no, that wasn't really important. Then why did you take up page space to do it? It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. If we're going to put our character in a situation where they might possibly do something, to later determine either out loud in dialogue or just in the course of exposition and context that that scene doesn't matter or go anywhere. That's a circular scene, and the majority of circular scenes can get cut, even with, or I would argue, especially when you are emotionally attached to them because they don't take us anywhere. If I go to the store and buy a few things and then come home and then realize I didn't have to go to the store, I, yes, if we're tracking the financial expenditure because, oh my God, money is tight then yeah, that scene matters. But if it's just John goes to the store and John gets X and then comes home and sees that he has X, it, it doesn't really get me anywhere. We want to make sure that our scenes have prospects. Prospects is another word for utility. We want to make sure that our scenes accomplish something in the story. Does it add to anything? Does it add to our who? Does it add to our what? Does it add to our why? Does it add to the world building? Does it add to the tension? Does it add to the drama? Is it an action beat? Is it something? Or are we just taking up space to take up space? Could we get away with cutting it because it doesn't get us anywhere? That's our big question with circular scenes. The next thing we want to deal with is overdone dialogue. A lot of writers, cozy and otherwise, go real heavy in dialogue, constant talking. And it's not even so much the subject, though we'll get to the subject in a minute. It's the idea that there's just so much talking, like a screenplay's level of talking, just character talking, then this person answers, then that person answers, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And I blame television for really over-influencing this because, again, television is a visual medium and we want to see the characters sort of talk out what would be thought otherwise because you can't really see thinking. You can see characters making faces and emoting, but you can't see the stuff going on in their brain. What we have is a lot of words. There's this happening. There's that happening. This says this. And what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And hi, how are you? And hello, how are you? And we're just adding more chuffa. We talked about chuffa last week. We're just taking up space. Dialogue that over explains what the reader already knows and what the character should already knows are fundamentally unnecessary. You wouldn't want we, the investigators of our example crime here, to stop and talk about, hey, what are we going to do about this murder? Can you believe this guy is dead? Yeah, that's the whole fucking story. Like, yeah, I can believe the guy's dead. We had two scenes where the body's laying on the floor. Yeah, the guy's dead. Or, oh my God, what are we going to do? We're going to solve the crime. That's the whole point of the book. If you have two characters who stop and turn around and go, well, I guess we should solve the crime. Yeah, what do you think we've been doing? Overdoing your dialogue in an effort to be snarky or in an effort to give more context unnecessarily, 
takes up space. It bloats everything and it slows everything down. We're not writing a screenplay. If you want to write a screenplay, go write a screenplay. I can recommend to you several podcasts, several books, several substacks you can read and get better at it. But we're writing prose, which means we don't need to talk so goddamn much. I mean, there will be talking. I'm not saying you want to have a minimum of spoken word, nor do we want a, the bare bones minimum of only talk about what's important, you know. But we do want to set up a situation where we don't have characters just kind of yammering at each other, taking up time and space. We want to do better than that. So trim your overdone dialogue. If you're repeating things characters already know, if you are repeating things that the reader should already know, and this is often a case where a writer writes something with breaks in between, like the writer doesn't remember that they covered the same thing five chapters ago because there are too many chapters and there's too many pieces. That kind of recapping, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Characters know what's going on because to them it's always happening in real time right in front. It's just now happening. They don't have the luxury of like, well, I took three months off because, you know, it was summer and the kids went, you know, were home from school and I didn't have a chance to write. Characters don't know that. The characters aren't going to respond to that. To them, it's instantaneous. You picked up and put down the manuscript and you, the writer, forgot where your place was because you, the writer, needed to take better notes. Overdoing your dialogue is an incredibly fixable thing. Have less talking and more exposition. Get inside the character's head more. Share that thinking, share that emoting, share that feeling, and you will not need to have the characters sit and verbalize all their stuff. Usually, people verbalize so much because they're not getting into the character's head so much, and you really, really need to. It's a mystery. It's supposed to make you think. So have the character do some thinking. Our last sort of issue that comes up with uh, mystery characters and mystery development is something called spontaneous conflict. Now, spontaneous conflict is the idea that shit randomly pops off, that it just happens. Uh, usually this is done at the end of a chapter. Usually this is done to create a sense of tension to keep you reading, even though if you've done your job well enough, you don't always need to constantly jab in there with a little bit of, oh, two guys came in with guns. Oh, the car didn't have brakes. Oh, the light turned on. Oh, this happened. You don't always have to hyper-manufacture a reason to keep turning the page if you've got a consistent level of tension already built. Spontaneous conflict is the idea that unprompted things happen to catalyze or invigorate a story that's already underway. We're not talking about something, there's a lull in story and then it picks back up. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about things that happen for little to no reason with little to no merit. We're not talking about like, I, I find a clue and then I also find that the, you know, the person owning the money boot prints tries to kick my ass trying to solve this crime. That's not a spontaneous conflict. That's a clue-based conflict. A spontaneous conflict is while I'm sitting here, you know, looking at the dead body or thinking about who could have done it, all of a sudden some guy comes along and clubs me in the back of the head and it's some, I don't know, random secondary character who warns me that I better look out and I better not blame one of his goons for doing it. And all I'm doing is I'm adding complication. A lot of spontaneous conflict adds complication without really any merit. Spontaneous conflict is generally an indicator of, I don't know what to write, so I'm just having something happen. The fix for this is pretty straightforward. The fix is a simple matter of 
it doesn't need to be spontaneous. It needs to be reasoned. It needs to have material consequences. It needs to matter to the story. Somewhere else in the story has to be some kind of seed that germinated to bloom into this thing that is conflict now. If, if not, it comes out of left field and it feels weird and it could maybe add some tension, but that tension is going to be short-lived and that tension is never really going to overshadow or ideally it shouldn't overshadow the rest of the story that we're developing. It, it just shouldn't. Too many times we add these spontaneous conflicts, we bring in these extra bad guys, these extra reasons to solve the crime, and that overshadows the actual problem of, well, isn't the plot the dead guy in the room? We don't really want to get into the habit of overshadowing things in order to make things more complicated or make things more urgent, because generally, if we, especially if we have a detective who's driven internally, there's plenty of motivation to solve the crime. We don't need the extra stuff. Spontaneous conflict is a real problem for writers who don't plan out well. Every conflict seems spontaneous when there's no substantiation for it. Every conflict seems like, oh, I'm just having this happen because it's been 22 pages and nothing's fucking happened, so shit's going to go. You want to avoid this by planning out your mystery, by planning out your what and your why and your who in that order by figuring out or understanding that the details like the fact that the carpet is white or the fact that there are six windows in the room or the fact that it's a black tie party and, you know, the bow ties tied this way and five people had boutonnieres. All those little details that you're somehow hoping become clues or Mr. X, they're all extra. They're all just poppy seeds on your bagel. They are nice, but they are functionally not the same and functionally not as critical as the bigger stuff. In the course of solving our mystery, in the course of managing all these extra parts, we want to make sure that no matter what, no matter how many times we digress, no matter how many B-plots we seed, no matter how many times we have this happen or that happen, we always come back to the primary relationship of investigator and crime and there's always enough tension in the act of investigating and in the act of resolving the crime to keep the story moving forward. If you're having trouble moving the story forward, go back and look at the crime. Go back and look at the relationship the investigator has to the crime. Are you making it too simple? Do you have too few clues? Are your clues too few and vague? A footprint and a knife are clues, but without any kind of context, they could be anybody's footprint, and it could be any knife. If we make it a knife found in the kitchen, in the house where the guy was found, sure, we're getting there, but anybody could have used that knife. That knife could be meaningless. It doesn't mean we need to use the jeweled 16th century dagger to do it, but it does mean we need to make sure that we have more than just vague clues that our genius detective will suddenly resolve spontaneously and the reader will feel cheated because they, they, didn't, they didn't get the backstory. How was I supposed to know? This is really common, especially in early Sherlock Holmes stories, where all of a sudden the detective mentions a clue and then verifies it and treats it as a clue. Ah, Watson, I see the watermark on this piece of paper. Quickly, let us go to my index of watermarks. Ah, the watermark is a W. This is all dialogue. Therefore, it is the House of Prussia or whatever the fuck it is. That's not going to fly in modern mystery because instead of dialogue where one character is telling the other character what the clue is, that clue discovery, that clue development should be an exposition. He should describe the paper. 
we should see the watermark. We should discover it as the detective discovers it. To eliminate the idea that the detective is smarter than the reader. Because it's not about being smarter than the reader. It's about the detective and the reader working together, being smarter than some group of B-plot characters or secondary characters in order to solve the crime. I will leave you with this. If you're ever trying to be smarter than the reader, stop writing the mystery because you've lost the point. It's not about being clever and getting a pat on the head. It's not about trying to trick the reader or complicate things and then the reader is somehow automatically guaranteed, ah, that's so smart, because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the mystery. It's about what you're shaping. It's about what you're crafting. You are arranging information in an impressive way not so that you get the credit, but so that you are seen as a skilled writer. And that is a distinction far too many mystery writers don't care about or get into because they don't think there's enough credit given. You're writing a mystery. There's plenty of territory for credit. Just try not to outsmart your reader. If your reader figures stuff out, good for them, they figure it out, they're still going to enjoy the story. And if they don't enjoy the story, that's not your fault. They just didn't enjoy the story and they need more joy in their lives or something. I don't know, but it's not your job. That's not your thing to worry about. Your job is to produce the art. What, what other people interface with or how they relate to it, that's on them and says more about them than it's ever going to say to you. Your job is to not stump the reader. Your job is to satisfy the reader or try to. And your job is to reward the reader's reading by continually giving them something entertaining, something that makes a difference for them. That's it. That's our supplemental discussion of mysteries. Thank you so much for listening to this. Give that some thought, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.